0: Well hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast, it's Toby Miller here and I'm at the Heights, which is part of what seems to be both the Langham Hotel and the George Hotel, is this right? I oh, know the George Hotel is very
1: separate from the Langham. So which one are we in? We're in the George Hotel. The Langham is that one over there, the posh yeah. one.
0: OK, so the, the, reason the reason I'm confused is that my telephone
1: yeah. thinks
0: I'm in one and my computer thinks I'm in another. No, no this,
1: this is this is the cheaper joint, the one across this the This is road. the cheaper <laughs> joint.
0: OK, so we're in the down down market one yeah. with this the is, loud Russians and talks. Well, like Johnny Foreigner likes this Place yeah. I've discovered.
1: But also, it's a lot of the BBC people come up here for like, meetings
0: yeah. So, and I'm here with a new friend, and I'm going to ask you to pronounce both your names because I want to make sure that I'm getting them half right. If I said Jeanette Steemers, would I be half right?
1: Yeah, that's that's okay.
0: That's okay. That's right, yeah. But what would be, you know, if you're really saying your names, what do you say? The
1: Jeanette, right, is is okay. The yep. Steemers right, bit is
0: probably not correct. But that's my husband's name, and he's Dutch. So how and does he, he pronounce it? God knows.
1: <laughs> Stamers or something. Stamers. Like that. Yeah, but I'm not Dutch, so I can't say it right.
0: <laughs> okay, but I just say
1: Steemers, and that go works fine.
0: Okay, all right, very good. Uh, and. Um, you have just been interviewing this morning, Yeah. what have you been up to? What's this part of?
1: Okay. Well, uh, I've just started a project with some colleagues on children's media in the Arab
0: world. Oh yes, you mentioned this yes. I think when we met. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, So I've been trying to find producers who have produced in the Arab world or co-produced and there aren't that very, very many. Based here in London? Based in the UK, yeah. A couple, the UK. a couple of years ago, um, A lot of British producers became very interested in what was happening in the Arab world because Al Jazeera started a children's channel so they had some money and there wasn't much money in the British market so a lot of British producers went over there to try and make programmes and Al Jazeera had plenty of funding Um, and so I was talking to a producer today who had done some pitches and it was quite interesting talking to him because he admitted to making some mistakes in the pitching and that was kind of related oh, yeah. to yeah it was related to sort of not really understanding the way that you know in, in the agriculture things are done folks, a little bit
0: differently folks there are working yeah
1: and the type of programs that they that they make and what, what's expected and things like game shows and competitions and and um, there was something he explained to me about a show that revolved around keeping secrets from a family member. Sort of it was a game show thing, and one of the Arabs said, we, "We can't do that in an Arab film, because really
0: you can't not have secrets, so it was, it was a sort of Arab not, Arab, acceptable. not acceptable. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I think at one time when Nilesat really got going, Disney had pretty much domination of the children's market, didn't it? Mm. And across the Arab world, US children's media is completely... Completely dominant on TV. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're <laughs> historically, yeah. Anyway. so this is wonderful. Well,
1: this was the whole thing about Al Jazeera. Is changing they wanted to make sort of the, you know, the, the BBC of the Arab world, really, and producing, you know, homegrown content that that Arab
0: children could you would like. Could well, since to. the BBC yeah. is no longer the BBC, it's a piece of shit. That would be very welcome yeah. anywhere. <laughs>
1: but it's quite difficult to do that in an Arab context because you're looking at the Arab world, and the Arab world is diverse as. If you know, I think comparing French and British people. Yeah. If you're comparing, like, uh, Moroccans with, say, people in the Gulf. Yeah. I mean, they even speak different languages as well, or different dialects. So when you're thinking about doing, um, children's programming in Arabic. I mean, what language do you choose? Mm. That's Mm. really difficult. And you could choose something like classical Arabic, but that's kind of really, you know,
0: quite difficult language for kids to understand. Well, and people are rutting all over the place in that language, aren't they? I mean, how on earth could you not have family secrets?
1: I don't know. I'm not. An, I'm not an Arab specialist. but It's all new to me. My colleague is an Arab specialist, so I'm the one that sort of brings in the, I suppose, the expertise on. You're children's the five-year-old
0: yeah. team.
1: No, Funny enough, I'm not. I'm, I'm. I don't know a lot about, sort of, you know, children's psychologists. So I'm interested in the industry because that's where I come. That's where my background is. Oh. So, so, so
0: and today you were talking to some of the. Yeah,
1: parts. it was just a sort of a, a start. That was one side of why I wanted yeah. to talk to him. Yeah. And just finding out because he said, oh, I haven't got very much to tell you because it was all a bit of a failure. And I said, well, that's okay. Come and talk to me anyway. because I'm. My whole life's a failure. And if people will listen
0: to me, I'll bore them shitless for hours on end.
1: Well, you learn things through things that don't work. So that's that's quite true. And then the other thing I wanted to talk to him about was a a couple of years ago, I published a book on British children's TV Mm. and things are changing so rapidly and all the players have changed like the big players I was looking at like three or four years ago um, they've either gone bust or they've been taken over by American companies and you know the people who made things like Bob the Builder,
0: you know, Bob, the Builder Bob the Builder was, was owned was by Johnny Foreigners?
1: Bob the Builder was started off by a British company round the corner from here called Hit Entertainment who I used to work for and it was huge it was huge and then last um I think last November they got bought up by Mattel Johnny foreigner, just keep your hands off Britishness, that's what I see. Well, Mattel bought them for a very, very important reason, I think. They bought them because they own Thomas the Tank Engine. So they bought
0: them to shut things
1: down? Well, they bought them because things like Thomas the Tank Engine are huge internationally. It's huge in places like China and Well, so true. I love Thomas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: But you're a Bob the Builder loyalist.
1: I think Bob is cuter. Um, Thomas, the original Thomas, um, (laughs) the original Thomas animation was, was... I don't think quite as interesting it's a as, as Bournemouth, from Aesthetic view. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, that, so that, that's, there have been lots and lots of changes, and uh, in the UK as well, the, the, the money for making kids' programmes has really quite almost disappeared, so producers are having to think of new ways about how they fund their programming. The only, the only player in town is the BBC,
0: well, the funding of all interesting television in Britain has ended, yeah. as far as I can see. But it's even worse for children's
1: programming. Is Believe it? me, it's it's terrible, really, really bad. I mean, so many companies have gone bankrupt and closed down. And and British program making was was seen as you know being really wonderful. All these Surely. kind of things, like you know, some of the sort of key classic programs came out of the UK. Bill um, and Ben. Yeah, yeah, it goes as far Andy back as yeah, yeah. Andy Pandy. I don't back think as that. that was yesterday. I don't think they they very well internationally. <laughs>
0: Um, Wherever I've gone, they'd be very close to my heart. That's so all I can say. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> they, didn't go, they didn't do well internationally. No, but things like, things like yeah. t- Magic t- Roundabout. Yeah,
1: that was actually French. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was, was just French. revoiced. It was re-voiced here. Okay. now.
0: Okay, but Teletubbies, yes. That's teletubbies huge.
1: was big. In the Night Garden was a big hit. Uh, things like Pepper Pig. Um.
0: Teletubbies had an interesting legal battle in uh, Mexico. Really? Because one of the big networks licensed it from yeah. the BBC. And another one didn't. And oh, they just took it. And just took it and made a thing called uh, Telechobbies. Yeah. Which uh, is basically how they would pronounce Teletubbies. Yeah. And right, they, nice they basically had to set yeah, it's not they got brilliant. their asses sued, which is hard to do with format sales, as you know, because they're yeah, like yeah, really yeah, yeah. on very sound yeah. footing. Anyway, so tell us about your past working in children's media. What did you do in Bob the Builder?
1: Well, I mean, I, I'm I'm not a program maker. I work for a company called Hit Entertainment, and basically, they were they quite rare to find these days. They were a distributor and this was back in the early 90s and they would if an independent producer wanted to sell their program overseas it was the distributor that you know sold it to the tv stations and stuff like that or did Um, home video deals, as they then where Video was really big then. Or if you were looking for money to fund your program, then you would use a distributor to find the co-production finance. So my job was to um, help the sales team find out about international markets and put together distribution deals and stuff like that.
0: Wow. So how did you do that research?
1: This was pre-internet, good grief. You <laughs> can't. Her, n- none of us can
0: remember how we learned anything. I, n- I don't know how I found my way anywhere.
1: Yeah, but it was so much easier. It was easier, Some that's way. interesting. Well, no, the, the, my first job after I did my PhD was working for a small uh, research company, I don't know what you call it, a consultancy, that did research of then um, the developing multi-channel market. And then, you know, information was at a premium and you did your research, you rang people up and you spoke to them on the telephone and you interviewed them on the telephone and sort of stuck a stuck the microphone to the phone. Didn't and your database was basically a whole load of files in the back room with like newspaper clippings in them. So I mean when was this? When did I start Nineteen eighty eight. There was no maybe you had any internet then, really? So that was interesting how you did the research. Yeah, you actually spoke to people. Yeah, but that's, you know, you get so much
0: information when talking to people. Sure, sure. Well, it's called um, reportage when it comes to newspapers and Mm. journalism. It's interesting that that's what you were doing today, though, isn't it? You weren't doing internet research today in 2013. You were actually going to a place and chatting to a chap.
1: Oh, I think it's really important. It's like what the people that... Some, because some, when you're sitting with somebody and they sort of want to explain something to you, sometimes they will pull something out of a desk and they'll, they'll sort of show you something that's really interesting to read, or, or I think you you need to talk to people and sort of engage them with them on a personal yeah. level, just do everything on the computer. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know what that says something about your objectivity and stuff, but when you're doing interviews, I think, I, I really like the person-to-person approach. You learn so much more.
0: And what had been your, tr- you'd done your PhD in the late 80s, is that what you're saying? Yeah. And what was that in? What feel was that
1: Well. My background is languages.
0: Uh I know you've done some translation, haven't you?
1: No, no, no. Why don't I think that? Oh, you've
0: written about different countries? Yeah,
1: yeah. Germany, German stuff, Yeah, I did. I did German and Russian at university. Uh And then when I finished my degree, I didn't want to go out and get a job, so I decided I'd do a PhD, because I didn't really know what PhD was then. I'd done my special project as an undergraduate on German television, and it was really interesting in the late 1980s because there was no private television. It was basically a public service monopoly. And yep. It was yep. horrible
0: and boring. Yeah. Was it? But was this West boring. Germany? Yes,
1: West Germany. Oh my God, it was West Germany. The most boring television ever. And so I'd done a dissertation on that because the private companies were trying to change the law and introduce private television, and a lot of yes. politicians didn't want that, and they said it was terrible. And public service broadcast had a constitutional monopoly and all this. Unbelievable, when you think about it. Yeah,
0: no-one would talk no, that way today, no. would they?
1: I mean, it went to the Constitutional cool. Court. Cool. Can I just do a little
0: bit of tea? Yes, yeah, sure. milk Milking before or after?
1: Uh, don't mind. And so that's kind of what I carried on with with my PhD. So oh, nice. my, my PhD's got a very long tape title. There.
0: What is it? Can you remember it? I think you should do the milk. I think it's too personal. Okay. All right.
1: It's... Um, Public Service Broadcasting in West Germany, in transition, or something like that. Oh,
0: were you finishing it when... Oh, no, because you, you must have finished it before. I finished it in
1: 1990.
0: Oh, so the, the wall was down. Yeah, I finished, finished it just in time. So you're not quite like these sorts of people. I feel very sorry for Sovietologists who finished their PhDs on you know, the latest understanding of the Politburo in late 1988, no. thinking they were going to walk into State Department jobs or get published by Stanford University Press. And, of course, no one gave a flying fuck. Five minutes later, mm-hmm. and they were done for.
1: Yeah. Now, I, I ignored East Germany completely in my dissertation, so I was very, very lucky. Well, I think
0: the West Germans ignored it yeah, in reunification. Yeah. And so I would never not? have
1: known that. I mean, when I finished my PhD, if somebody told me that the East Germans were, you know, within. When did the war fall? Was it 1989? 89. 89.
0: You'd actually. I think you were so busy beavering away on the dock. I didn't even notice. <laughs> on Germany. You didn't notice no, it. No, no, it's not true. I
1: did, I did notice it. I was with my sister in law in a bar in Amsterdam. And um, we were watching the telly.
0: We were watching the wall come down. Okay. The reason oh, this is funny because last night in Brighton, I did a pod, recorded a podcast with somebody else, a journalist, who was who went to Berlin because of this.
1: Yeah, because of
0: the wall coming down. Yeah. Yeah. So here we are, less than twenty-four hours later. Mm. Oh, that's so. That's interesting. So, you, but you just this was a period when, apart from anything else, late eighties, early nineties in Britain, a lot of people in academia or close to academia couldn't get jobs because of Thatcherism. And went in and left the country, went elsewhere. I knew lots of people mm. who went to different countries. But did you just decide you didn't, you'd you had enough of university at this point? Oh,
1: God, I hated it. I didn't thought of going working in university it was just horrible because I'd spent far too long doing my PhD. And like a lot of PhD students, getting really depressed about it and wondering whether I would ever get finished and fed up with my parents constantly asking me when I was going to get a job. So I thought.
0: Was it more your mum or your dad? Mm.
1: No, actually, my parents weren't too bad. It was mainly my grandparents. My parents didn't really understand what I did. My dad's builder.
0: Hence, Bob the builder, and your affection for that group. Yeah, no, but um, his name's not Bob.
1: Though. No, it was Derek.
0: <laughs> but um, but your grandparents were more. Accessible. Yeah,
1: I think so because they didn't. They people didn't. I suppose my generation is probably the first generation to go to university, and I spent like four years doing a language degree, and then I did four years doing my PhD, and at the end of four years I still wasn't finished, being conceivable now, because I didn't really know what I was doing,
0: I think. Well, my, my anxiety is that in Britain people finish their PhDs without knowing what they're doing. Because they're told to finish them in 14 That's minutes. That's
1: terrible. I couldn't finish, finish mine in three years. I spent
0: the first. I can't read a book in three years, let alone no, write one. No. I don't know what they're talking about.
1: Well, I spent the first two years just trying. Well, I had a completely different topic.
0: What did you start out with? When
1: I started off, I was going to compare. Cable television policy in Britain and Germany, and then I realised that this was the most boring topic in the
0: world. It was incredibly boring, and there wasn't much on it. <laughs> Nothing was
1: happening. I said Because everybody boring, was boring and Well, in really the early 80s, everyone was writing, oh, you know, I'm. Um, Cable's t- going to change everything. Yeah, of course, it didn't, did it? And I thought, I can't do this. And then well, it I. did It mean- it, mean, it really did in the United States,
0: yeah, no, uh, the, along with deregulation. Yeah. In, really in,
1: in the UK, it came later, and it wasn't cable, it was, it was satellite. satellite. Yeah. So, and, and we're talking more sort of the late 80s, And, of course, really. in the
0: US, it's, it's actually satellite anyway, because even though a lot of it's delivered yeah, on cable, yeah. the stations send around yeah. their signals to... Mm. Cable companies, but
1: But then then I changed, sort of two years in, and I managed to get a scholarship to to Germany which was a bit of a game changer for me because I was at a university which was right next to ZDF, which is the largest German broadcaster. And I realised that something was going on that, that they were about to sort of make that change, and, and that was quite interesting, really interesting to me. Yeah. And, and
0: is was the model of the sort of denazification of German political culture to decentralise the media in the same way that it was to decentralise politics and so on? Yeah, no, absolutely. Much, but
1: but there, there were there were different sort of trajectories because the the under the British in the north. Um, they have tried to centralise everything. So you had like this big, these big stations in the north and then where the Americans were occupied you had kind of smaller stations and they made it more sort of pluralistic. And, and the, the, the thing about the Germans was that deep down I think they never really accepted the system that the Allies had kind of imposed on them, the system of public service broadcasting. Right. And I think particularly on the right a lot of the politicians were quite keen to break that up because... some. Um, Particularly on the Christian right, they thought that um, the public service broadcasting was too left wing, so they wanted to break it down. And they were probably right. Interesting. So they were interesting times. But I was stuck at one of the most conservative universities in Germany, at Mainz, um, which had been. Have you heard of Elizabeth Nuller Neumann?
0: Of course, the yeah. spiral yeah. of complicity with one's Nazi yeah. past, yeah. so to speak. Yeah.
1: I can't think of mine, I can't think I can say that she you put it on your podcast. I think it was Colin Sparks told me that she was the Lainey-Riefenstahl of German mediaist. Sure. So, which i thought was quite
0: Well, it's very, there's a whole generation of people mm. who had very complex pasts, yeah. so that it's, it's easy to judge poorly yeah. and perhaps correct yeah. to judge poorly, mm. is it yeah. right? She's one of them. And uh, there are plenty of others mm. who were connected to the regimes in various mm, yeah. ways. Yeah. 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 So really.
1: But the whole German setup was quite interesting academically as well, because it's much more politicised. And so their their broadcasting system's very politicized. Yeah. And there are lots of, you know, politicians sit on the advisory boards sure. and stuff like that. Good thing but too. Well, we we'll not about that, but in Germany, the the academic system is very politicized as well. So that if you're a professor mm-hmm. and you want to get appointed, it has to be I believe it has to be signed off by the minister president of that particular state. So I've had German colleagues telling me that if you're not the right political persuasion, there are certain universities where you. Are in,
0: in many England. states of the U.S., if you don't. If you're a US citizen and a man and you don't register for the draft, yeah. you can't be appointed as a professor. Oh, okay. God. It's quite normal.
1: Yeah. So you were okay then because
0: you I am, uh, uh, well, I am now a US citizen. But, oh, right. Uh, I wasn't when I was 18. Mm. But uh, people who are conscientious objectors can't get jobs at many state schools in the United States. Really? Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. Wow. So... Where did you get Um, your theoretical and political energies from in this project?
1: Um, That's an interesting one. (laughs) I don't know, I think when I started off doing, doing my PhD, that was a big problem for me because I didn't have that background at all. You've a languages person. Well I had a languages background yeah. and I found I found it really, really difficult. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons which why it took me quite a long time to, to get my PhD because I am not you know, I don't have a background in sociology or political science. And things like media studies were kind of in their infancy then, so it was quite hard to sort of get that background.
0: I suppose I'm really sort of an empiricist, really. You know uh, yeah, I mean. yeah, so that's interesting. So anyway, you finish it and you think, thank God for that. Mm. I'm going to make my grandparents happy yeah. by going and getting a real job mm. selling children's TV around the world, mm. which is a real job. I, mean, I laugh, mm. but it is a real job. Uh, instead of doing something that has no there there's no output that people can recognise Mm. Uh, who are outside university worlds. If you say I'm helping to sell British children's Mm. TV to other countries that makes perfect sense to anybody Mm. it's a job, so you go and do that
1: I I did consultancy first which was looking that's That's not a real job that's incomprehensible I worked for a company called CIT Research that used to do big studies on things like um, broadcasting in Western Europe and yeah. local area yes. networks, and I used to have to go and do field trips and go and talk to people oh. in Siemens about oh. telephone oh. connections. Yeah. So this yeah. is before yeah. mobile phones, so <laughs> lots of travelling around. Yeah. And that's when I was telling you about, you know, having the database in the back office, which was bits of paper, uh, yeah. and, and that's how they used to do the research on telephones and, and sending, you know, twenty somethings around the world interview executives and then they used to write these reports and sell them at I think they were quite expensive, I think they were sort of like two or three grand a pop. And that's how I got my job at HIT because I was doing some research onto the developing independent production sector and then I met the people at HIT and then they offered me a job. Got you. because I had languages and right. I knew more than just about the UK
0: and probably you know I mean, both German and Russian sectors suddenly expand mm. at that well time. Russia wasn't a interesting market only
1: <laughs> in the early 90s I mean not at all you couldn't sell anything it wasn't Russia. opening up no no and even if it was opening up they didn't have any money it would be a different case now but um Yeah, I mean, this is when, you know, it was really opening up sort of internationally for British companies and selling abroad and the independent sector was beginning to sort of get programme rights and and wanting to sell its programmes and not just have those sold by the BBC. So uh, that became quite interesting. Oh,
0: so they retained the rights for international territories when they sold the domestic rights to the BBC, whereas in the past that wasn't the case?
1: For children's programming, if you could retain some rights as an independent producer, then you could go to a distributor, and they would sell programming on your behalf. But often that wasn't the case because, as you know, they they only changed the uh, um, terms of trade sort of around 2003, I think it was. I actually didn't know that. Uh, so then, the, before then, if the if the BBC had funded everything or right, ITV funded everything, they tended to retain all rights. Yeah. yeah. And then the independent producers fought to sort of, a bit like the American system, really, yeah. where you just license it. Yeah. But with children's programming, it's a bit different, because if you get co-producers on board, then, then you, the rights tend to be a bit more yeah. fluid.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and that was the gap that HIT, Hit fulfilled. Oh, interesting. But HIT grew out of Henson's. Did it? Mm-hmm. What happened was that um, Henson's was based here, and then around 1990, um, Disney decided to buy Henson's. And obviously if Disney had bought Henson's, Henson's wouldn't have needed a distribution arm. So the distribution arm under my old boss split off. Disney was all ready to buy Henson's and the Muppets and everything, and then Jim Henson died. He died, didn't he? Sort of
0: influenza or something. I,
1: I don't know what he died. Quite, quite suddenly. Quite suddenly. A bit of yeah. real shock, because he was yeah. really loved, didn't
0: he? Yes. I mean, oh. a special person in that yeah. company, wasn't yeah.
1: he? And so I, the deal never really sort of went through uh,
0: at that time. Yeah. So, so this is sort of mid-90s you're at hit? It's early 90s. Early yeah. 90s. And what happens to you then?
1: Um, I hit 30, and I think I realised that I was beginning to have kids, and it's an impossible job to have. When you've got children. When you've got children, because you travel a lot, yeah. and they, yeah. they want you to work sort of 80 hours a a day. Yeah.
0: So why not become a British academic and a lady of leisure?
1: Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> they're like. A... I um, was looking around for a job. I said, I've got to get out of here now, because I've just had this this. Yeah. And uh, I got a job at the University of Luton, and I'd never taught before or anything. So that was a bit of a shock.
0: University of Luton, which is here in Britain, oh, and is, but is now called... The University of Bedfordshire. Oh, yeah. Yes. For obscure reasons, or clear ones. I think it just sounds better. <laughs> it just sounds better. I know people in the United States find I mean, it very you. difficult to pronounce Luton, L-U-T-O-N. Yeah. I should say... Uh, this is listened to in 50 countries so that's why i'm doing some possibly pointless contextualization all over and we'll know what the muppets are <laughs> so you went off there and you're teaching when you all get kinds there? of stuff
1: all kinds of stuff like media and society and, but one of the things i really got into was sort of i suppose um, teaching undergraduates how to pitch programs and write proposals and stuff like that So that was quite interesting and it was good because i had lots of contacts in the industry anyway so i could bring them bring them down and kids i think kids really like that yeah i mean the the theory side of thing is really really important as well but they they need to feel that that's connected to sort of real real life Yeah, yeah so i did that for a few years and then i got tired of that and then I, I moved around a bit.
0: So a, a question about children. You said you yeah. had, started having children. Yeah. I'm always interested in people who've worked in children's television, or on children's television, and their attitude to their own children and TV.
1: Um, I think I'm quite laissez-faire.
0: <laughs> Are you? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so. The thing is, I mean, they get to a certain age, and they, um, you know, they very much have their own opinions about what they like and what they don't like. I, I grew up with a time when I had friends, one of my friends, her mother refused to let her watch ITV because it had advertising on it or they thought it was down market. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah I, I I had a girlfriend in high school whose father took oxy from to a television set so that the station could not be changed from public broadcasting. <laughs> really? Yes. It's true.
1: So they had to watch... What's the, What's the big icon of public service broadcasting? Mr... Oh... So Mr. Green No, 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 no. It's a sp- apart from, obviously, Sesame Street, which everybody knows from Public Service Broadcasting, there was one other programme, Mr. Mr. Oh, I can't remember what comes to yeah. meet mm.
0: Not sure. But anyway. Yes, an amazing achievement to take yes. the oxyacetylene torch, to the television set, the better to control your children's yeah, viewing. Yeah,
1: yeah. But it, but it's true that, I mean, I think a lot of people sort of start looking at kids' programming because they've got kids of their own, but I can't say that was the case with me. I think it came out of the work that I've done
0: before. Yeah, sure. And so, so you, if you, in terms of places you've taught, so you then start moving around. Right now you're at the University of Westminster. Yes,
1: which I like, it's really good.
0: <laughs> which is near Wembley Stadium, yes. the famous football ground. Yeah although bits of it are here in central London mm. but your bit
1: in Harrow. which is sort
0: of the biggest bit is mm. in Harrow mm. which is where Wembley is and you've got one of the most notable communications media studies departments in the world mm. I mean it's very distinguished mm. I think it's fair to say how did all that come about were you part of that or are you, are you a recent addition oh, no. no I'm
1: a recent addition I mean the, yeah. the um, the media studies system, I think it started in the late 60s and actually they were based here in central London and they had, I think they had the first media studies degree ever and it was, I think it was more theory based then, and since time has gone on they've introduced more practice elements and things like, you know, Was it
0: called something else then? The university? The
1: university was then called the Polytechnic of Central London, and the Polytechnic of Central London was established in the 19th century, late 19th century, it's just across the road, and apparently, you can go and look at it if you want, it has the earliest cinema in the country. I
0: I have been to it. It has wonderful stonework that tells you that it's here in, in order to elevate the working man or something yeah. to that effect, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it has a, it has a long history. And then in the, um, a few years back all the polytechnics became universities, so it changed its name. Yeah, right. So it's now the University of Westminster. But it's been around a long time. And there is the Westminster School, which is, you know, Nick Garnham and, and, so. and where, where yes. Paddy Scanlon.
0: You mentioned Colin Jesus. Sparks. Who Colin Sparks, there, uh,
1: who I was talking to two days ago, because uh-huh. I've just come back from Hong Kong, so I'm apologising, a bit, bit jet-lagged, but I had, I had an issue. Now, with what him were you doing in Hong Kong? My husband has gone out to do some advice on the ref in Hong Kong. And I on the what? The ref. They have a ref in the no. research no. assessment no. exercise.
0: Right. This is this... It's called. It stands. The acronym means Research Excellence Framework. Yeah. <laughs> Here in Britain, and it's this system of the state having taken away block grants to all areas uh, outside its preferred domains of research and teaching, namely science, technology, medicine. It's a method of clawing back money to universities based on a uh, comparative assessment of the research strengths of the faculty in different domains that get assessed by panels on a disciplinary basis. So they have something similar in Hong they Kong. They have something
1: similar, and he'd gone out for a couple of days and I decided to take oh, a couple good. of days off. So what does yes, he do? He teaches architecture.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So we have completely
0: different... But he, and he's quite involved in the architecture, so to speak, of this yeah. evaluatory yeah. system, value yeah. system. Yeah, 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 yeah okay. Oh fun! How was the trip? It's a
1: long way to fly (laughs) for three days. It was interesting. I always wanted to go to Hong Kong and just see what it was like, and I. Old university friend over there, so we had dinner, oh, met up with Colin. Um,
0: so it was good. Spectacular to fly into and out of, isn't it?
1: I think in the olden days it was more spectacular because the airport was right in the middle of the city and now it's kind of moved out.
0: Yes, that is true actually. I'm, I was there in May, but I'm thinking yeah. back twenty years yeah. rather than a few months. Gosh, you're quite right. Mm-hmm. It was very spectacular in those days. Oh. Yes. So you're here at Westminster, you're teaching this stuff. You call yourself an empiricist. This is a badge of honor for many and shame for some, in the sense it's used to criticize, it used to be used anyway, to criticize people. What do you mean when you say it?
1: Yeah. I don't think I have any sort of overriding sort of grand theory. I mean, I'm not, and I admire my colleagues, I mean, market people like Colin, who's got Colin Sparks, who's, I suppose, has a sort of a Marxist background. Um, but I don't have any sort of overriding grand theory mm-hmm. that sort of encompasses my work, so I like to sort of find out what you know what's actually what was actually happening, <laughs> and then and then and then read round read round that. And I think there are sort of lots of ways of sort of looking at the way that I'm interested in the way that the industry works, mm. and, and there are you know obviously it's not completely a theoretical. I mean, you do read round what what people do. I'm interested in things like you know the ecologies of production and how. That is kind of influenced by different things like technology and policy, mm. and, and the way that um, you know different players negotiate that, and through issues of power and, and responsibility and ethics, and all those sorts of things. But th- there is no sort of you know grand sure. theoretical sure, sure, design sure, sure. behind it. Mm. Although I think you know that, that's important as well. I think that, you know there's room mm. enough in academia for, for different viewpoints.
0: Yeah, sure. Now in terms of the. Uh, so we say, status of television in particular at the moment, because that's what we've been Mm. talking about a fair bit. Mm. People are constantly prognosticating about its future. I wonder if you could say a bit about that, and also a bit about specifically children's television. (laughs) Mm. And this might be about Britain, might be about Germany, might be about the Arab world. Mm. Go for it.
1: I think... The thing that slightly worries me is that There is a lot of research and hype about what is happening with new developments and things like social media and obviously they're really, really important and they're going to get more and more important but I think, you know, things like television are still massively important and if you look at things like the Arab Spring, I suspect that things like television and pan Arab television was, was in some ways probably more important than say things like social media during the Arab Spring because you know most people are not even on the internet in the, the Arab countries so you can't completely dismiss it and I think that sometimes when we look at some of the new developments we're looking at it from a very sort of you know Western developed world perspective and even you know in a developed country as well not everybody's sort of social networking or on Twitter so you can overplay that a little bit and the thing that slightly worries me a little bit about some of the new developments is that people are too enthusiastic about some of the things that are going on and they're not looking at some of the underlying ownership questions and it worries me that, that you know that companies like Facebook and Google—you know—those those are the next new corporations, and the responsibility of what they're doing with the data. And you see, you know, you read and see, you know, certain colleagues becoming quite infused by things, and not you must never lose that kind of critical criticality, really.
0: Well, in a way, I was thinking about this the other day, it's hard for people perhaps to think of them as corporations because they're not vending things to yeah. us in the way that a computer manufacturer is. Because they're vending us. <laughs> they are vending us, they're vending our attention mm. and our participation mm. and our ideas, mm. our intellectual property, mm. yes? But that's why I think it's difficult to think of them as corporate.
1: Mm, but they are. They are very, very much corporate. And I suppose it's also the way that they market themselves and this image that they're all sort of hip, young things skateboarding in their in their open plan offices in wherever San <laughs> Francisco, and everything's hip, and you don't have to come to the office and stuff like that. I, I don't think it's like that at all. And I, think you, I think more researchers need to dig. De- down, down into that, and I'm glad to say that we've got people at Westminster who are doing that, and I think that's that's great. We've got two new members of staff, Christian Fuchs and Graham Meekle, and they you know they're looking at stuff like that, and I think it's really important. Mm. So that's the first thing I would say. As far as te- I think, television to, is still going to be quite important. It's changing the way that people are u- using it um, and what they're looking for. But I think people still like like stories, things like reality television, obviously become really important, and the way that sort of interplays with other media is becoming interesting. But TV is still really important for people, and you know. Just the, Television just didn't displace the cinema. Radio is still around, I mm. you say. Know,
0: very successful space. in We're this country, especially. Yeah. especially uh, spectacularly successful in uh, lots of the United States. For mm. example, California. Absolutely. And...
1: You know, radio in the States has carried that whole tea party thing, hasn't it? Weird,
0: whether it's you like it or not. It's certainly been very important. Yeah. So, um, uh, enabled by the end of local marketing uh, and its displacement Mm. by national marketing Mm. that became possible because of satellites. Mm. So you get the destruction of Mm. local radio that is talk radio that's articulated to particular audiences. Uh, And for the first time it becomes possible to attract major national advertisers, like car companies. So you get a very national sweep and perspective Mm. um, that doesn't necessarily rate brilliantly, Mm. but because it brings in so much money to local stations via national Mm. advertisers, it doesn't have to rate as well as Mm. local stuff. And the simplest way to have material is to have one very consistent, in this case bigoted, idiotic message. Mm. So, yes. It works well. It works extremely well. It's been successful for 20 years. Yeah. Tea Party for a third of that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And television, yes, people still want a large thing in the corner that emits sounds and images that are fun.
1: Yeah, they'd still buy these huge TVs, don't they? (laughs)
0: There's no sign of it stopping. No, absolutely People not. keep telling me that it's over, and I say, well, I'm glad that you tell me your mm. daughter doesn't do this and does do that. Mm. Do you think that's the basis for explaining the entire conduct of the world's population? True. I actually don't think it is. Yeah. <laughs> but, but dream on. Tell me about your son. How interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, I think... I think TV TV is still really important. I think that the the big threat for TV is whether they actually have the money to make stuff. And this is the big problem for those in the industry. And maybe it's not such a big problem for the audience, but it's a problem for those who work in it. Because, you know, audiences are fragmented, there are lots of channels out there. Things are getting more expensive, the broadcasters don't pay very much anymore. And I think, particularly for smaller countries, that's quite difficult. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, supporting stuff that, that, that um, appeals to their audience. It
0: enables massive consolidation of power yeah. when it comes to news, current yeah. affairs drama. Yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, drama is the big thing. I mean, I don't know whether you've heard of The Killing, yeah?
0: Yes, it's very popular in the United States. It was remade there. Yes. But Was that successful? Fairly okay. successful, but the original was quite successful. Yeah, and, of course, yeah. the reason for all this Nordic drama yeah. being so popular here is because the BBC could no longer afford to buy yeah. US drama because yeah. it was being taken away by yeah. Sky satellite systems. Yeah. That's an example where, that's, actually, that's it's providential because mm. you get very good television. Mm. No, becoming but, available. But the other movies. thing, everybody
1: sort of goes on about how wonderful Danish drama is, but <laughs> and it is and it is wonderful. But that that and the Bourbon, which is the other one, are probably like the main dramas that they make all year, and they haven't got any budget to do anything else. That's, that's, it, that's all they nice. do, and it's quite interesting about what they are. What you they a choose. knitter?
0: Hmm? Are you a knitter? To knit? God no. <laughs> so when you do, you could not relate to the The woman knitting, the detective. My
1: husband really liked the series. I couldn't get into it. You
0: couldn't get into it. Is he a knitter?
1: No, but I think he just likes things like that. He's he's Dutch, you know, they're used to looking at things with subtitles.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Poor bastards. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But it's interesting, the sort of thing that they chose, it's kind of... It's a detective series, isn't it? And and it's, for me, like, with my uh, language background, looking at something like um, The Killing... I mean, it is quite reminiscent of the sort of things that they do in Germany. They're quite low-key in the way that they're made, and they're lit, and, and, and they're quite slow, and they're quite wordy. So, the fact that, you know, people got into, into it in the UK well, not that many people got into it because it, it was on BBC Four, for God's sake. Vicky so,
0: Frost of The Guardian.
1: Yeah, it was important, you know. It was the people who've got, you know, the glitter after you who sort of kind of watched it and that's kind of how it became sort of talked about, but the average British person probably never even watched it. They're no, still watching in- EastEnders. That's they?
0: interesting. Yes, EastEnders. I'd is like to know
1: what the audience was for it. It's the same thing like Mad Men as well, which is the thing that yeah. all the TV professionals and academics like that. But yeah. how many people actually watch it? All the Sopranos here.
0: Well, in the case of Mad Men, of course, in the United States, it's on a cable channel yeah. Uh, yeah. where you get quite small ratings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And in the case of the Sopranos. It was on HBO, wasn't it? HBO, which is a, a top-tier yeah. satellite yeah. cable subscription. So but that works
1: for them because they don't need a mass audience because they're paying that a subscription. So it really works.
0: Well, ratings. Matter for the, they us to do it is the network that it Mad Men was on yeah. because it's not to be right. They don't matter really mm. for HBO. HBO has two ways of yeah. making money. Uh, one is getting black and brown men of the working class mm. to fund middle class white people to watch drama by paying large amounts of money on pay per view for Boxy right, okay. to see other black and brown men hurt yeah. one another. Okay. And secondly, through this mm. basic subscription model, which assumes that, mm. and this isn't necessarily the case, but it assumes that people buy subscriptions not based on individual programs. Mm. Now, there are people who buy subscriptions to HBO because there's a new Sopranos right. season, and they only buy it for that time, but nevertheless, they're paying mm. for everything. So that's the, mm. the basic mm. model. Whereas AMC, American Movie yeah. Classics, is, well, is uh, not operating on that basis, mm. it's uh, not, ex- not top tier mm. at all, it's operating on the basis that in fact the Mad Men doesn't break even in the mm. United States. Mm. On first run, Mad Men is very expensive to make, like HBO mm. drama, and it makes its money through syndication and, selling overseas. and overseas sales. But yeah. it doesn't, it's like a network drama, very expensive, yeah. so not going to make its money back probably. Yeah. Uh, by, plus of course AMC ratings matter because it has commercials.
1: Mm. Well, in, in, in Europe, or the UK is quite a large market, what supports it is the licence fee. And I suppose if you look at ITV, the big hit that they've had recently is Downton Abbey which costs a lot of money to make, and then they recoup it on sales to the US, but that's to PBS. Mm. And what are the audiences for PBS? It's like 1% or something. It's 3%, but
0: um, the average uh, viewing age of PBS is 55, and that is probably younger, by the way, than the average viewing age for the nightly news on CBS, ABC, NBC and Fox. Yeah. <laughs> they, won't, they won't acknowledge this, but there are some reports that it could be 62. That's the average age. So you'd be a young thing. You and your husband would be young things watching (laughs) nightly news and television (laughs) in the United States.
1: Yeah, and it's a bit like the German channel said DF. I think they said that the average age was something like 60-something Yeah, it's wonderful.
0: I don't know in the case of Downton Abbey what the average age is. It is a a big hit in PBS terms.
1: Yeah, it's talked about a lot, isn't it? I mean, I went over there, my... Relatives who live in the US, who in their sort of late forties, early fifties, oh, Downton Abbey, Downton Abbey, but it's kind, of, it's kind of, uh, I suppose, um, it's a repeat of uh, Upstairs, Downstairs was a big hit, wasn't it, it in, was. the, in the seventies and eighties? Oh, it's, I mean, the,
0: unfortunately, the United States laps up. Idiotic right-wing costume yeah. class drama from the period yeah. of world enslavement by the British.
1: But it's quite interesting what the way it's sold here, because they're doing the you know the PR thing here, and they sort of paint it up as a big export success.
0: Do they? Well, they do, oh, but that's interesting. But
1: that's the other background thing I have is that I've always been interested in that, and I've, I wrote a book called Selling Television, which looked at British exports. Yes, I have read this book. Yeah,
0: that's true, I'm sorry.
1: And the thing about those costume dramas is that they're played up as big export successes, but the only place where they really work is in the US. That's the only place that they can really sell them. Maybe some of the other English language markets, like Australia. But, you know, the Italians and Germans are.
0: Not,
1: just not watching,
0: yeah. Go away. This is silly. I had an
1: Italian buyer once. Tell me about British drama. They said I couldn't possibly buy any British drama because the women are all too ugly. <laughs> <It's wonderful. laughs> because you know, they just they, they have a slightly different feel to their drama than and they don't do. It sounds frogs. like
0: Berlusconi's personal yes. purchasing policies well, at play. Yeah. <laughs> I think this was a public
1: service channel. Well, it kind of, but they, you know, the, the, there's this kind of the, the arrogance that British television is the best, and Dalton Abbey has, you know, undoubtedly got you know very good um, production values and stuff. But I don't see it as the big export success. You know what the big export successes are? They're the things that don't. Don't betray any Britishness at all. It's things like you know the X Factor and starting off with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. All those game shows. Well, and these are format things. sales they're that formats, can be customized. Yeah. And, and you know, if they're big in the states, your average American doesn't think this is a British show. The it's thing
0: like that's really show. going to bring them a lot of money—that mm. is bringing a lot of money—is football, mm. uh, where. It is actually mm-hmm. the English Premier League people in many parts of the world want to watch, oh, and it's easy to customise. Mm-hmm. You have the standard feed, but you either overlay it with localised commentary, mm-hmm. or you overlay it with halftime co- localised mm-hmm. commentary, mm-hmm. and that's the I think where uh, there's a real opportunity. In fact, an opportunity that's already been seen because NBC has outbid. Murdoch's football television stations. Are, are we talking cable. about
1: soccer here? Yeah. 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 Okay.
0: yeah, real football, not Nancy <laughs> boy football where <laughs> no. they wear helmets yes, and they're frightened okay, of one right. another and they I'm can't not a great sports run kick or pass the yeah. ball. Yeah. This is association mm. okay. football, soccer. Mm. Uh, NBC has outbid Murdoch's designated quite expensive mm. cable channels mm. for the rights to the English Premier League so for the first time really? all the games are going to be on what is maybe the biggest broadcaster in the world, because, you know, it essentially owns yeah. the ele- essential Olympics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I have to tell one so.
1: of my PhD students this, Mike Milne, he's doing, um, He's writing about sort of football and rights and, and the internationalisation. Oh, yeah,
0: no. Well, um, there's a book to about, about to come out, edited by Rob Steen and Jed Novel. Yeah. The I think it's the Oxford Companion to Football. Mm. And. Uh, it has quite a lot of discussion of this mm. in the book, but the NBC purchase uh, is is vitally important. Mm. And similarly, uh, you know, all through Latin America, Africa, mm. uh, Asia, enormous popularity for English. Yeah,
1: but there's also places. I know a huge amount of it, but the tension there between who controls
0: that, whether it's the clubs or the, or the leagues or the broadcasters? Well, it's, it's basically controlled by the, in the first instance, by the English Premier League, mm. which is not the football league or no. the football associations, mm. elite large market clubs Mm. here in the UK where the top teams are all owned by foreign investors Mm. Mm. that sells the rights as a block and then depending on its mood shells Mm. out money to different entities. Mm. Mm. Now what of course is interesting is the next move which is so-called subsidiary rights, because now you know, New Deal has just been done, whereby British Telecom yeah. has outbid ESPN, which is owned by Disney, yeah. for the rights here in Britain. Yeah. So ESPN is closing its facilities in the UK, which yeah. is almost the end of ESPN Europe, and yeah. selling them to BT, which doesn't know how to make TV. Yeah. And also, of course, the Sun is going to be selling people. Uh, the rights for almost live coverage of goals Mm. online, Mm. so at the moment ESPN has online rights to show the most important bits of games, that's all gone to Murdoch, so there are shifting sands that are quite dramatic and the big question for international television sales apart Mm. from drama and children. Stuff is sport yeah. and it 's football really yeah, and then uh, and then that becomes what if we really do get the decision to make internet rights really count mm. such that internet coverage rights into the United States can go at the same time as television coverage rights mm. into the United States so that you have uh, not what NBC calls plausibly live, but genuinely live coverage online of these sports. That's when, mm. if it happens, mm. you'll know that the real power relation between television and the internet has shifted. But until that time, through it. Anyway, sorry for the lecture. Well, no, that's
1: interesting. I never thought about that
0: before.
1: I hope if NBC gets it, I hope they do a better job than they did of the Olympics coverage. I was out there. It was terrible. <laughs> Sorry. See. Oh, indeed it was.
0: I, I watched. I was in. Uh, I was working in the U.S. and mm. then Colombia during the Olympics, yeah. and then I moved here. Mm. So I saw three places coverage of it, and uh, I only saw a little bit of the BBC's, but it was very good. Mm. NBC's was appalling as always, yeah. and the Colombian stuff, which was shared in, across a couple of competing networks. Yeah. Yeah was really good, um, very parochial, but because they only won a couple of medals, the parochialism was very sweet. So each time they won a medal, the president yeah. would uh, call uh, the winning athlete and their mother. Oh my God. <laughs> so you had a three-way split screen uh, of the mother crying, talking to the son and daughter. The son and daughter crying and the president saying, Long of <laughs> Colombia. So um, what did they win then? Uh, they won a couple of Medals in BMX.
1: Oh, really? Right. By-
0: yeah. Biking. Yeah, they were very good at that. Because it watching- was the most successful Summer Olympics ever for Colombia.
1: Watching the American stuff, I think... We were watching the gymnastics and we thought the Americans were doing really well <laughs> because they only really showed the Americans and at the end of it they didn't win any medals. The medals all went to I don't know it was good at the time, the Chinese or something. Well,
0: I don't, I can't remember who did it. but It was in the really past, confused. They used to have Al Trout yeah. doing mm. the commentary. Who's huh? basically a baseball and basketball commentator. Oh, right. My favourite Olympics ever though was, I watched the 1988 Olympics in Australia, or 1984 Olympics yeah. in L.A. in L.A. and in Australia, yeah. and in Australia, <laughs> they had a former tennis champion, a Wimbledon the champion, John Newcombe, commenting. My
1: guy with the big moustache. Yes,
0: with the famous supporter. Yeah. And John Newcombe said after this boxing bout, I don't know much about boxing, but I reckon the Aussie guy won. <laughs> <laughs> and, then in, and then there was another yeah. moment when they had an Australian commentator talking about a, an event in the pool I think this might have been yeah. in Seoul when Costa Rica won a medal and the Australian commentator said and a medal to Costa Rica in the pool I can't believe it
1: but the Australians got really cross this summer, didn't they? Because they were the, woeful. Because mm. the swimmers when they didn't swim fast enough or something. They've been partying too Well they, much.
0: they it's just been revealed, according to the BBC, that they were all taking downers <laughs> oh, God. at parties, so they were a little slow out of the box. good grief. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. And they've
1: just they've just um, told their cricket team off as well for not being serious enough.
0: Yes, I love that. They were supposed to do homework. Work. Write little essays on how to be better. And
1: of course, the English players are all sort of thinking this is hilarious.
0: Ho ho ho. Yes.
1: I don't know
0: what Shane Warne would make of it. He'd just send a text, wouldn't he? He, Shane Warne is an Australian cricketer, now retired, who used to have a very lively sex life online and in tweets to various women. Not tweets, sorry, text messages Mm. to women. But is now under the preserve, as it were, of. Elizabeth Hurley, who has, seems to have put him under the knife, he appears to have had large amounts of plastic surgery such that most of his face no longer moves.
1: Mm. <laughs> yes. Well, I always remember him as being a bit wrinkly and sort of, like, he liked a
0: bag and a Yeah, who ate ate all the pies? (laughs) Yes. Body. (laughs) That's all gone now. I think Elizabeth was definitely disappointed. Uh, And the hair is somehow different. Maybe a little surgery up top as well. I
1: think I I have seen him advertising for um, hair implants or something like that. Wonderful.
0: Well, we've got He's a brilliant
1: cricketer. I love watching him bowl.
0: (laughs) Nothing wrong with any of the things he's done. It's just that he is a differently. A shaped creature from the one that we encountered 20 years ago for the first time, Mm -hmm. shall we say? I
1: think so.
0: (laughs) You heard it here on the pod. Well, thank you very much for sharing these stories with us. I think it's particularly helpful to people to learn about how a trajectory into the study of the media, the study of communications, can be linguistic, empiricist, empirical, experiential, and how, in a funny circle, uh, you found your way still to do work. It is a bit like what you were doing when you were working for the hit company just down the street from here. You're still talking to people. Yeah, I like to, to find out what they do and why.
1: Well that, that's, that's what makes it interesting. You, can't, you, know, you can read and you can you know, do the typical academic things, that's really important and work. Oh, that's terribly valuable. But it's very really valuable, but, got, <laughs> but I think that's one of the problems as academics, that we don't talk enough to people, we don't listen. That's, really, that's one of the most important skills, is actually just listening to people.
0: I take this as an invitation to all of us to get out more.
1: Yeah, it's so
0: important. Well, thanks for that. And when you finished your Arab media children's mm. work, will you come back into the pod and share with us really, what you find out?
1: Yeah. Thank Absolutely. you so much. <laughs> I don't know if you can use any of this.